Well, good morning, Woods Edge Church family, wherever you are, scattered in homes and apartments and maybe outdoor porches and other places throughout our city and scattered folks around the world. Good to have you here. Several hours ago, I decided to change my entire message, and I'm not that kind of a preacher. I'm not the kind of a preacher that kind of wings things Sunday morning. I'm the kind of a preacher who believes that the Spirit of God not only leads me on Sunday mornings, but He leads me in the study on Monday mornings and Tuesday mornings and Wednesday mornings, and I'm working and studying on the message all week. And I wondered uh, yesterday if I should uh, change my message in the book of Acts. As those of you who are part of the Woods Edge family know that we, we go through books of the Bible, because uh, it's God's Word and it's holy, and that's just, we believe that's the normal fare that you do. But um, there are times to audible, and today is such a time. And so, uh, several days ago, I, I write a statement about the racial, racial tension and the tragedies involving Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and all the racial problems in our society. And I was going to read that statement this morning and then proceed with the book of Acts. But several hours ago, I, well, five or six hours ago, I'm in my time with the Lord, and I'm asking God, Lord God, is there anything I need to hear from you today? And this is what I felt I heard. Jeff, share your heart about George Floyd, not your head. And then follow my leadings in this. And at the time, I don't know what that mean, exactly all that meant, but okay. Okay. Well, a couple hours later when I finish my time with the Lord uh, and I sit down to think about uh, this morning and there are things I'm going to say, I had no peace about proceeding with my message. It was clear to me that wouldn't work. That wasn't going to work. So we audible. And I'm going to share my heart, not just my head, about these matters. And I wish you were all here in the room during our services, so I could look deep into your eyes, into your faces, and so that uh, you would know that I love you, and I care about you, and especially those who are African American, I have hurt for you this week as your pastor, and I have hurt for the African Americans across our country. And we, as your church, we care. We care, not just me. We care. Um, and, and I want to start off by just telling you, I felt like the Lord wanted me to say to you this morning, at the start, that I love you, because I'm probably going to get pretty wound up. And let the chips fall where they may. So two days ago in my time with the Lord, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, I'm reading. Let me, let me tell you what 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says. It's just my own personal study time, personal time with God. It says, Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, that, that little two-sentence statement just says volumes. By the way, 
parenthesis. If, if you're at all struggling with pornography and you read and believe these two verses, the pornography stops today. If you see others in the church as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, those of us who are older as daughters and sons, pornography stops. And everybody outside the church, well, they're potential brothers and sisters. But that's not my point on the passage. <laughs> it's deeper and broader. And that's this. Paul understood this extensive mindset that in the body of Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We are family. We're, we're mothers and, and daughters. We're fathers and sons in the body of Christ. And in fact, our bonds in Christ are deeper than any biological bonds that we might have. Yesterday, I'm talking on the phone with Charlie Howell, who is our lead elder. And I mentioned this passage, and he immediately proceeds to tell me a story about his friend, Reggie Beasley. And I think we have a PowerPoint of Charlie and Reggie. Do we have Reggie, too? You can put Reggie up. Okay, that's Charlie and Reggie. Charlie, the first guy, is our lead elder, and I'm a close friend. Well, Reggie and Charlie are very close, and uh, that they, I think they worked together at ExxonMobil. They both retired from there. Reggie is an executive pastor at the Crossing Church in town. Charlie is our lead elder, so they're in different churches. They're leaders, and they meet together every Friday and have for years and years. And yesterday, or Friday, two days ago, Charlie tells me, we met three hours today and sharing our hearts about some things. And, and Charlie uh, compared that to the fact that he grew up in a small town in Oklahoma with a biological brother, and he talks to him maybe a couple of times a year. Now, when Charlie tells me that story, I'm immediately reminded what a small town in Oklahoma in the 1950s and 60s would look like, because I grew up in a small town in Texas in the 50s and 60s. And we had segregated schools and a deeply racist society. And I can bet that's Charlie's background. But yet here today, the man, that he, the, the man, the human being man that he spends more time with than any other man is probably Reggie Beasley. And, and that friend, as the Proverbs say, is closer than a brother, closer than his biological brother, church do you understand that this is the body of Christ? Because our bonds in Christ are eternal, and they are, they are built on the, on the blood of Jesus Christ, the shed blood that is our forgiveness. And so, in light of the biblical teaching that in the body of Christ, we're not mere acquaintances. We are brothers and sisters in light of that teaching, I, I want to ask all my white brothers and sisters this question. Are you hurting for your black brothers and sisters this week? Do, do you feel pain in, in your heart? Have you been heartsick? I hope so, because they are hurting. And my Bible tells me in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's some weeping going on. And I hope that you too see yourself as brothers and sisters 
and the body of Christ and, and all that means. This week, uh, my heart has been churning about this racial, uh, about George Floyd's tragedy specifically, the, uh, the Ahmaud Arbery tragedy about the racial tension in our country. Uh, I've just been churning about it. Several days ago, I, I called David Hill, the pastor I prayed for earlier. Uh, many of you know David. I wish I had a photograph to put him on the screen. He has preached here some. He's an African-American pastor in the Third Ward, which is where George Floyd is from. And David's wife, Melissa, went to high school with George Floyd, and David knows the family. They know the family. And I just called David uh, to check on him. David, how are you doing? How are things going? I am hurting for you, David. And David proceeds to tell me, okay, David is in the third war in Houston, one of the, the famous uh, sections of our historic sections of our city has been African-American. He, he's lived there for years. He's, he is like the pastor there. And he said, Jeff, I'm doing everything I can to keep the young black males from giving way to hatred and helplessness. I'm doing everything I can. And I conveyed him, to him my heart that I care that um, if anything we can do as a church, we, we want to do. Um, many of you are check our social media pages, and several days ago we posted a social media post from Guy Caskey. Guy is one of our pastors. Uh, Guy is our, our movement's pastor. And Guy is white, and he's from Houston, and he... Uh, his father was a state trooper, and he is adopted and a black uh, son from Ethiopia. And so he kind of lives in both worlds a little bit that are uh, involved right now. And Guy Kasky has about a three-minute statement that is so powerful. And at one point gets me that when his son from Ethiopia... Who's, who's probably, he's 20, 22, he's a pretty young guy. When, when he learned how to drive, they, they had to give him special training. <laughs> because as a young black man, if he gets pulled over, um, depending on the officer, uh, things could, could not go well. And, and he keeps his insurance right above his visor. I, I wish you were all here so we could have a show of hands of how many white people keep their insurance right above their visor. I don't keep mine above my visor. Mine's in my glove compartment. Because when I reach over there to get it, the police officer is probably not afraid I'm going to grab a gun or something. And when my son turned 16 or whatever age we teach him how to drive, I did not have to give him special training about, you be sure and keep your hands on the steering wheel. How would it be if your son, you had to give him that kind of special training because he might get shot as an innocent man. How would that be? That would be pretty scary. And that's the kind of empathy that God calls us to in the body of Christ. Okay, here's my question. How can we think biblically, Christianly about racism? What does God say in His Word? Now, by the way, by the way, the, 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 the church in every generation has completely missed the ball in some area or another. Uh, what happened to uh, 
so many white Christians in the mid-1800s in America that there wasn't an outcry against slavery. I mean, there was by some, but they were a minority. Well, what happened to the church in Germany in the 1930s? There was not an outcry against Nazism. And, and, and other areas I, I could name, those are just the blatant ones. But, but if we think that we're the only perfect set of Christians, generation of Christians, how, how arrogant would that be? And I can tell you some of our blind spots, they involve materialism, they involve divorce, uh, other things, but racism is part of it. And um, what does God say to us this morning in His Word? We could make a dozen arguments against racism from the Bible, but we only have time for a few. And I'm going to condense them. Uh, four arguments against uh, racism, the Bible. Because I want get to get through these and, and, and make some application to our lives. Okay, first one. The first uh, argument against racism in the Bible is the cross. Church, the cross of Christ crushes racism. It crushes it. I wish I had time to read Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, because the, the, the dividing barriers between Jews and the Gentiles in the first century Israel society were just as deep as between blacks and whites in our country and other ethnic hostilities around the world today. They were so deep that you didn't eat with them uh, in the first century. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Gentiles didn't eat with Jews. They didn't go in each other's homes. It was blatant. Deep divisions. Paul's big charge in this passage and throughout the New Testament is this. If we've been rescued by the blood of Christ and forgiven and brought to Christ, reconciled to Christ, then we are also reconciled to the whole body of Christ, brothers and sisters, including Gentiles, if you're Jewish. And for you Gentiles, including Jews, we are all one in Jesus Christ, every barrier and division has been demolished at the cross of Jesus. So the ultimate basis of unity between people is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The ultimate solution to racism is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for sinners. In fact, I'd say this, the world has no ultimate solution to racism, but we do in the gospel. And it is so clear, so overwhelming that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be completely different when it comes to issues of racism. The gospel is the only real basis and foundation to end racism, and every other ethnic division, nationalistic division, every other kind of division. It is the cross of Christ alone that is the true basis to unite us. That is the basis, as I was talking about earlier, about brothers and sisters, and that's, that's what demolishes every barrier in the body of Christ. Outside of Christ, we are still in our sin, and we will erect barriers and walls between us. Sin always does that. But when we're united to Christ, those barriers go down, and we can unite with each other. So, teach your children that the blood of Jesus is the end of racism. Teach your children that the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of your ancestors. Teach your children that the blood of Jesus is thicker than the, uh, uh, your patriotism to your country and that the only solution to racism and all ethnic hostility is the blood of Jesus. Now, that truth is uh, you have not read this week on CNN, Fox News, Wall Street Journal. You have not seen that truth there. Our society completely misses it. They don't know it. 
But church, we know better because of the grace of God. Colossians 3.11, here, that is in the body of Christ, here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Whoa. You're telling me, Lord, in the body of Christ, there is no Anglo, Asian, African-American, Hispanic. There's no Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. Lord, there's no um, uh, American, Mexican, uh, French, British, that there are, we are all one in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? Well, for me, it means that the essence of my identity is not my race of being white. It's not my country of being American. I love my country, but that's not who I am. It's not my state, Texas. It's not my job as a pastor. It's not my a family, even my family. I mean, that's getting pretty close to my heart. But the essence of my identity is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if anything else is more important to you than the Lord Jesus Christ, and you claim to be a Christian, you, my friend, you are an idolater, an idolater. If politics, your political views, are more important than the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an idolater. And everything else in your life as well, including your own family. I am a blood-bought, much-loved follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is who you are if you're in Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ crushes racism. That's the foundation. But I got a few more things. The mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus crushes racism. Jesus Christ began his mission in Luke 4. And in Luke 4, uh, he's at his hometown. He's announcing that he is the chosen Messiah. And what does he do? But he quotes two passages from the Old Testament, and the hero of those passages are not Jews, but Gentiles. And the people are so furious with him that they try to throw him off a cliff because it's just a horrible insult in the deep ethnic divisions of that day. And, his, and Jesus is saying to them, he says, my kingdom is not about God preferring one people or one race of people. The kingdom is wide open to all peoples. And what Jesus is saying there is that I am the end of ethnocentrism. That is, thinking my people are the best. And church, that, that, I see that in just about every country in the world. Certainly in the United States, but I've seen it in Israel where the national religion is largely Israel. I've seen it in Turkey. I've seen it, certainly it's in all through China, uh, United States. Uh, I see it in about every country. Um, Jesus Christ is the end of ethnocentrism. This is how Jesus begins his mission. And then he does other teaching. He teaches about the good Samaritan in Luke 10 when the Samaritan, the hated, despised Samaritan, is the hero of the story, not the Levites and the priests. Or the ten lepers who are healed from leprosy, and only one, the foreigner, comes back to thank him. He's the hero. Or Mark 7 when Jesus teaches that the temple in Jerusalem is to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just for the Jewish nation. 
Or in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnos, all the ethnic peoples of the earth. And it's on and on. The mission of Jesus crushes ethnocentrism and therefore crushes racism. Thirdly, so we've had the cross of Jesus. We've had the mission of Jesus. Now, thirdly, the command to love. I mean, Jesus taught us what's the greatest commandment. He was asked what's the greatest commandment, and, and he doesn't give one. He gives two. He says, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And, and, but, but then he wouldn't stop there. He says, and the second is like it, uh, love your neighbors yourself. In other words, they go together. If you're going to talk about loving God and you're not loving people, then you ain't loving God. They go together. And, and in fact, later in Mark 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, Okay. It's not how much the Bible you know. It's not how much you give. It's not how many times you go to church. It's love for one another. That's the earmark. And racism, of course, is completely incompatible with the love of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't, if you don't have love, you don't have anything. It's just worthless chaff, whatever you think you've got. Racism, racial pride, racial hostility, discrimination, prejudice are all totally compatible with the urgency of love. Love sees the best in people. Love does the best for people. Love feels for people, cares with people, wants the best for people. Love treats people as we want to be treated. Love treats people as if they were Jesus Christ himself. When you think about that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25, how you treated others is how you treated me. Think about George Floyd, treating him like Jesus Christ and our neighbors. Love seeks to understand what other people are going through. And so this week, have you tried to understand, if you're not African-American, what it's like to be a black man in America and to be looked upon as suspicious or dangerous when you walk down a street? or drive down the street just because of the color of your skin? Have you felt with them? The command to love crushes racism. Fourthly, finally, heaven, the diversity of heaven crushes racism. My Bible tells me that in Revelation 5, we've got a magnificent portrait of heaven and there we read, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what he's doing there, he's just piling up terms to say all kinds of people, all kinds of people. And, uh, and, and he says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is what heaven's going to look like. I, I love it, Wood's Edge that there's so much diversity here, uh, that, that there's people from at least 50 countries, maybe more. I love it that we're having more and more uh, racial diversity, but we don't have nearly enough uh, in my judgment. But, but this just pleases God because this is the deal with diversity. Diversity means that um, in, in the church is that all these differences, the only thing that unites us is Jesus Christ. And that just magnifies Jesus Christ. That magnifies the power of the gospel. That magnifies the power of the cross. That, that the only thing uniting us is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And uh, that just pleases God, and that's a picture of heaven. So for the glory of God and for all eternity, this is our destiny. Diversity is our destiny. It's our home. It's our eternal home. And this just glorifies the Lord. And so the diversity of heaven crushes racism. Now, church, that's just four arguments. I mean, and each one of them are completely uh, demolish racism. And there is just absolutely no basis for it among the followers of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand how strong this teaching is all through the Bible, laced through the Bible, because there were just as deep ethnic hostilities and divisions laced through the Bible days as there are today. Um, I know many of you uh, who are white uh, would think to yourself, okay, Jeff, I've got this. Yeah, tell them, Jeff, they need to get this down. And, and I think it's a bit arrogant to assume that we're, we're free of racism. Um, I, I grew up in a small town in Texas, and when I was in high school, I started reading Martin Luther King and Jr. and Gandhi and other things, Henry David Thoreau, and, and I, I took pride in myself that I was not racist, and I lived in a small town of racism. And, um, you know, I had a largely segregated high school until my junior year in high school where they no longer had a separate school for whites and blacks. And so that's kind of my background. Um, and I took pride that I've been racism-free. But in more recent years, as I have read and paid attention more to this issue, I don't know that any of us are completely free of racism. Because we're not completely free of sin. And so I need to come in brokenness and repentance. And if God exposes any racism in your heart or mind, then let's be quick to repent and receive God's grace. And by the way, that racism can run both ways. Church, we see in the Bible that our deepest identity is in Jesus Christ. It's our only identity, only true identity. And that means that no, I'm not primarily American or white or pastor or husband, or runner, but I am essentially a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the challenge of God to us is be to pursue racial diversity, racial harmony in every way that we can, be the first to reach across a, a racial barrier, be intentional about relationships. If, if all your friends look just like you, you, you might ask yourself, why is that? I'd urge you to intentionally seek friendships with people of other races and ethnic groups. Invite them into your home, to your home church, your journey group. Be intentional. The church must lead the way. Uh, when we have opportunity, we, we must stand up and speak out against racism. I, I am, it's very clear to me that what my black brothers and sisters want from me as a white person and from you as a white person is, is not to be silent because there's been way too much silent silence. Uh, let me encourage all of us to not assume that we uh, know everything about folks from different races. Uh, let's ask questions. Let, let's, uh, let's talk with people who are different. A couple of years ago, I read a, an extensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. And I don't know if it was in this book that I read it, but it's a famous letter that he wrote from jail in Birmingham when he led the heroic fight 
for civil rights in our society in the 1960s. But he's in jail, and he says this. He, he wrote this to pastors. He said, there was a time when the church was very powerful, and the time when the early Christ Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning in the 20th century. And church, if we're going to, follow, if we're going to be the faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will labor and love and pray for racial diversity in our lifetime. We will not reflect our society, but we will influence our society as salt and light. For racism is completely incompatible with the cross, with the mission of Jesus, with the command of love, and with the nature of heaven. Because Jesus Christ is the end of racism. The blood of Jesus runs, different, runs deeper than the blood of race. Now, um, yesterday afternoon about 4 or 5 o'clock, I opened my email Headed out, Gail and I are headed out for a, a long walk, and I open my email, and I receive an email from Duncan Bennett. I think we've got a photo. I just want to show you Duncan. That's Duncan Bennett. He's a, a godly, mature believer, part of the Woods Edge family. And this is what Duncan writes. He, with his permission, I'm reading part of his letter because I think his letter is extremely powerful. In fact, I thought when I saw his letter, I, I thought a bit about the Martin Luther King Jr. letter that I wrote. This is what he says. He says, Dear Pastor Jeff, I've been trying to write this letter this week, and I realized that I wanted my pastor to know, to know that I am hurting. I am hurting and in need of your prayer and guidance. Like most of the black people I know, this pain is all too familiar. It never really goes away. We know that these events happen every day in America, Nearly one black person for every weekday in 2019 was killed, and that we only rarely find out about them. We know that at any, at any moment, we ourselves may fall victim to the racism and hatred of people we don't even know exist. The hum of it drones in the background of every moment of every day and occasionally crescendos into a violent cacophony that is too powerful to be ignored. As a community, we tend to come together at these times to make sure that we have not just lost our minds and that, we are, that what we are seeing is actually happening. With our sanity confirmed, we are forced to accept the truth of it again and to wait for the excruciating events that invariably come next. Much like the flooding of Harvey and other recent storms, the torment doesn't stop at the moment that George Floyd dies under the knee of Derek Chauvin. It spreads. Just like how the, with the storm, the floodwaters continue to rise after the rain stop, the trauma can, comes in waves to every black person watching, waiting, hoping that this time it will be different. The usual progression includes equivocating by many white people who support the police no matter what, an unwillingness to hold the officers responsible, 99% are never charged, while allowing him to hide behind unsubstantiated accusations like resisting arrest. A reaction, that leaders, a reaction from leaders that condemns the actions of the dead black person while affirming the rights of the living white person. 
a refusal to indict, prosecute, or convict the murderers, even when the event was caught on video. Each of these steps is another foot of water in our home under clear blue skies. Each one tears open centuries-old wounds that never have a chance to fully heal. Fortunately, this time there was a difference. This time, the officers were almost immediately fired, even if they were, not, even if they were allowed to remain free. There is hope. But even embracing the hope is like standing in the floodwaters. Will they recede or will they start to rise again? We are, immo- we are immobilized with fear and dare not exhale just yet. Many of us have come to the conclusion that things will only change when our white brothers and sisters are just as outraged as we are. But most of them are silent as usual during these times. In some ways, I'm glad that we don't have a room full of people because I I might have a tendency to ask every white person here who has not spoken up in some way this week to raise your hand, and that would not be a good thing. But God knows. There are uncomfortable conversations that no one wants to have. But if we don't start having them, we continue to wade through the floodwaters hoping they will recede. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Martin Luther King said, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Duncan continues, he says, this one grabbed me. Duncan is writing, he says, I saw a sign that was erected in front of a building that simply said, white people do something. The truth is that no matter how hard we try, those in power don't care to hear black voices, and they don't have to, unless our white brothers and sisters make them listen. We need everyone together to stand up and demand that this change. Just like in the 60s when the civil rights movement brought people from all walks of life together to demand change, we need that unity again. But no matter how desperately we need it, we cannot create it. We, Duncan writes, need you. We need you to talk to us about these uncomfortable issues and get just as uncomfortable as we are. We need you to care about black people's lives as much as you care about the lives of unborn babies. The issue of abortion has been labeled by many to be the moral issue of our lifetime. Many pastors teach that we have a special duty to care for those who cannot defend themselves, and I believe we do. But why are those unborn, defenseless human beings so much more important than born black ones? This is often the pivotal issue that defines a person's political and social life. But George Floyd was defenseless. He was unable to defend himself against three policemen while he was conscious, and he was definitely unable to defend himself against them once he passed out. If their cause is true, shouldn't every pro-life person exhibit the same outrage for George Floyd that they do for the unborn child? He concludes... To me personally, he says, I want you to know, Jeff, that I am ready to work too. I I would love an opportunity to talk with you more about this situation and how we can actively work to heal and to grow from it. I know that because of you and the leaders of Wood's Edge, these conversations are already happening, and they are. And then he says, please let me know how I can participate. And he signs it, in the water, but with hope, Duncan Bennett. That's one powerful letter. Um, church, 
It's 2020. Some of us have lived in, in this world a long time. I'm talking about this racist world a long time. And um, with this many Christ followers around, there is no excuse that it continue. If every white follower of Jesus Christ in America made it clear that this kind of behavior was not acceptable anymore, things would change. And so I don't know what that means for you and for me, but I'll tell you this, it means that you are just as outraged as our black brothers and sisters. It means that you care um, that they may have a son who has to have special training to drive a car. It, it means that you realize that the cross of Christ is so, um, is so incompatible with any form of racism that it's just no question. And that if we want to see Houston become a city of God, then uh, one of the non-negotiables is that racism begins to disappear in our society. And that will only happen by the Spirit of God and by surrender and by the church being the church that God has called us to be. So I think my summary for us as a church is that to all of us to care for our brothers and sisters to not remain silent but speak up against racial injustice, that with the attitude, this has got to stop in 2020 in our world. And then beyond that, follow the leadings of the Spirit because apart from Him, we can do nothing. So, church, that's who we are as a church, and we are not backing down from it. And if you're part of Wood's Edge... This is where we stand. And I do not know what this is going to mean for you or for me, but we are fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ who crushed racism. Pray with me. Lord, I just can't help but say again, Lord, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for not caring about the hurt and the pain of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us changes. Lord, I don't know what this means for me, for my brothers and sisters who are white, for Wood's Edge, but oh God, um, we are your blood-bought followers, period. And so whatever you, wherever you lead, Lord, that's where, we're, that's where we're headed. You tell us where and what, Lord God, and, and, and we're there. Just show us, show us. Lord, we need you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.